0: Beit El by Rav Yaakov Medan The Midrash and Rashi appear to have deliberated at length over the place that Beit El occupies or should occupy in our consciousness. A literal reading of our parasha would seem to justify the actions of Yeruvam ben Nevat, who abandoned Yerushalayim and built a new religious center for the nation in Beit El. The king took counsel and he made two golden calves, and he said to them, It is too much for you to go up to Yerushalayim. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. He placed one in Bethel, and the other he placed at Dan. He offered upon the altar that he had made at Bethel on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, in the month which he had invented on his own. And he made a festival for Bnei Israel and went up to the altar to offer incense. In our parasha we are told explicitly that the house of God that is destined to be built will be in Bethel. For there God was revealed to Yaakov... That was the gateway to heaven, and Yaakov would fulfill his oath by building the house there. For this reason, the Midrash and Rashi seem to feel obliged to forcibly uproot Beit El from its central place and to shift the weight of our parasha onto Yerushalayim. Let us review their words, and especially the way in which the Midrashim of Chazal are reflected in Rashi's commentary. Upon which you lie. God rolled up all of Eretz Yisrael under him, hinting to him that it would be easy for his descendants to conquer. This suggests to us that it is of no importance where Yaakov actually lay. Either way, the entire land was folded up under him. Thus, even if he lay in Bethel, God may have been speaking to him from Mount Moriah. Rashi adds to this by explaining, He happened upon the place. The text makes no mention of which place it was. Rather, it refers to the place, which was mentioned elsewhere, in other words, Mount Moriah, Concerning which it is written, he saw the place from afar. Thus he concludes that the specific place upon which Yaakov alighted was actually Mount Moriah. Further on, Rashi comments as follows, Furthermore, the sages taught, Yaakov called Yerushalayim Beit El. But this was Luz, not Yerushalayim. So from where do they deduce this? I maintain that Mount Moriah was uprooted and brought here. It was a miraculous displacement of land. In which the temple came to him in Bethel. This is the meaning of the phrase, He alighted upon the place. And if we ask, Why did Yaakov not then stop when he passed by the site of the temple? He did not pay attention to stop at the place that his forefathers had prayed, but heaven delayed him there. He went all the way to Haran, but when he arrived there, he said, Perhaps I have passed the place where my forefathers prayed, and I did not pray there. He decided to return. And when he reached Bethel, the land was uprooted for him. Here Rashi explains that Yaakov did indeed reach Bethel on his way back from Haran, but the land contracted itself for him, and Mount Moriah came to where he was. Rashi comments further But the house of God, Rabbi Eleazar said in the name of Rabbi Yossi ben Zimra, this ladder rested with its foot in Be'er Sheva, while the middle of it hung over the site of the temple. For Be'er Sheva is in the southern part of Yehudah. With Yerushalayim in its northern part, on the border between Yehudah and Binyamin, Bethel is in the northern part of the portion of Binyamin, on the border between Binyamin and the children of Yosef. Thus the foot of the ladder was in 'er Beersheba, and its head in Bethel, such that the middle of it stretched over Yerushalayim. In other words, Yaakov did indeed sleep in Bethel, but the gateway to heaven he saw at an incline over Mount Moriah. Thus Yaakov actually directed his heart towards Mount Moriah, for this is the place that God chose. Altogether, Rashi provides four different ways of turning the Beit El of the literal text into Mount Moriah in Yerushalayim. And all this just to prevent any possibility of our deducing from our parasha that the place that God chooses for the establishment of the Temple is the city of Beit El. Since the scope of this year is limited, we shall discuss only the latter two explanations that he offers. Firstly, that Mount Moriah was uprooted and came toward Yaakov as he returned from Haran, and secondly, that Mount Moriah was situated under the center of Yaakov's ladder. How are we to understand Rashi's words? The first way of understanding this teaching is that Yaakov did not dare to pray at Mount Moriah on his way from Beer Sheva to Haran. He walked the entire long journey, about eight hundred kilometers, until he reached Haran. Only when he got there did he regret not having prayed at Mount Moriah and so he wanted to walk all the way back there. But God had mercy on him. Mount Moriah jumped to Beit El, and thus his journey was shortened by about 15 kilometers. This explanation leaves us asking, what was the point of all this? Why did Yaakov originally refrain from praying in Mount Moriah, and why did he decide afterwards to go back there and pray? Moreover, on his long return journey from Haran to Eretz Israel, what is the point of so marginal a contraction of the way as the distance between Betel and Yerushalayim? Perhaps Rashi's explanation here ties in with his teaching at the end of the previous parasha concerning the discrepancy of fourteen years between Yaakov's departure from Beersheba and his arrival in Haran. According to Rashi, Yaakov spent those years learning Torah in the Beit Midrash of Shem and Ever. We learn that Yaakov was, at that time, sixty-three years old. Ishmael was seventy-four years old when Yaakov was born, Ishmael was fourteen years older than Yitzchak, and Yitzchak was sixty when his sons were born. Thus we arrive at seventy-four, and he lived a total of a hundred and thirty-seven years. As it is written, these are the years of Ishmael's life. Thus, when Ishmael died, Yaakov was sixty-three years old, and we learn from here that he remained in the house of Ever for fourteen years, and then went to Haran. It seems that the Beit Midrash of Shem and Eber was in the north, while Yaakov, in panic-stricken flight from Esav, did not stop to pray at Mount Moriah, perhaps not even knowing where this mountain was located. The Beit Midrash of Shem and Ever was not far from Haran, and after studying there for 14 years, and deciding to go and find a wife from among the household of Lavan, his mother's brother, Yaakov longed for Beit the place where his forefathers had been, and so he returned to Eretz Yisrael to seek out the place. We learn more from Rashi as to what happened to Yaakov in Betel. He lay down in that place. This is a succinct hint at something much bigger. In that place he lay down, but for the 14 years that he spent in Everz yeshiva, he did not lie down at night, for he was completely engaged in Torah. Our initial impression is that Rashi is praising Yaakov for his conscientious dedication to Torah, not wasting any time, and therefore not sleeping at all during his stay at the Beit Midrash. Only when he left to seek the place where his forefathers had prayed did he permit himself to sleep. Once again we ask, what possible lesson can we learn from Yaakov's conscientiousness in Torah study, which was not of this world? Aside from Yaakov, legend tells of another phenomenally conscientious Torah scholar, David HaMelech. David said, I have never been asleep at midnight. Rabbi Zeirah said, Until midnight he would doze like a horse. From that time onwards, He would fight it off like a lion. Ravashi said, Until midnight he was engaged in Torah, from then onwards in song and praise. The same question we posed concerning Yaakov would apply to David. It appears to me that this is meant to teach us not only about conscientiousness in Torah, but also, principally, about the fulfillment of David's oath and vow. A song of ascents Remember, O God, to David all his affliction, that he swore to God and vowed to the mighty God of Yaakov. Surely I shall not come into the sanctuary of my own house, nor go up to my bed, nor give sleep to my eyes or rest to my eyelids, until I find a place for God, a dwelling place for the mighty God of Yaakov. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrat, we found it in sde We shall come to his dwelling places, we shall bow down at his footstool. Arise, O God, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength." David is disturbed by the question of how he can live in his house, and sleep upon his bed, while the master of the house is like a guest in a temporary lodging, and his ark has no fixed place. He does not know where the place of the Shekhinah is. He does not know where to establish its place. David is certainly aware of the story of the Akedah at Mount Moriah, and he must surely know that it is with regard to this mountain that it is written, concerning which it is said to this day, On the mountain God will appear. But he does not know which mountain it is, and which place God will choose. David promises that he will not lie down to sleep until he finds a place for God's ark to rest. It is for this reason that David does not go to bed all those years, and, since a person cannot function without sleep, he used to doze off like a horse, in other words, standing, but would not lie down on his bed. Yaakov was in a similar situation. He was sent by his mother to establish himself a home, but having come to learn Torah, he understood that he could not build a home until he had found God's home, Perhaps the Midrash is suggesting that Yaakov made a similar oath to that of his royal descendant, David HaMelech. During that time, throughout the 14 years during which he tried to find the place of the Shekinah, of the god of his fathers, Yaakov refused to lie down and sleep. He too would doze upright like a horse. After the 14 years, Yaakov decided to go back and seek out the place that God would choose, and he did not know where it was. In Beit he suddenly felt sleepy and for the first time in 14 years, he lay down to sleep. He dreamed a dream, and when he awoke, he understood its meaning, and the meaning of his first sleep in so many years. He had indeed found the place of the Shekhinah, the resting place of God's Ark, and thus he had also found rest for his soul, and license for his body to lie and sleep. Mount Moriah was uprooted, and brought to him not in order to shorten his journey, but rather in order to show Yaakov the place that he was unable to locate on his own. Not like Abraham, who called God's house a mountain, as it is written, in the mountain God will appear, and not like Yitzhak, who called it a field, as it is written, Yitzhak went out to meditate in the field, but like Yaakov, who called it a house, as it is written, he called the place El Beit El. Rashi states, Yaakov set out from Sheba. The Torah need only have said Yaakov went to Haran. Why is specific mention made of his leaving? It teaches that the departure of a righteous person from a place has an effect. For so long as the righteous person is in the city, he is its glory, he is its radiance, and he is its majesty. When he leaves, its glory, its radiance, and its majesty all pass away. The immediate question is, why does Rashi say that the glory of Be'er Sheva departed? After all, Yitzhak was still alive and living there. Let us return to the Midrash of Rabbi Yossi ben Zimrah. This ladder rested with its feet in Beersheva, while the middle of it hung over the site of the temple. For Beersheva is in the southern part of Yehudah, with Jerusalem in its northern part, on the border between Yehudah and Binyamin. Beit El is in the northern part of the portion of Binyamin, on the border between Binyamin and the children of Yosef. Thus the foot of the ladder was in Beersheva, and its head in Beit El, such that the middle of it stretched over Jerusalem. The usual interpretation of this midrash is that it depicts a long inclined ladder, like a fireman's ladder, with its foot in Beersheva and reaching up to the heaven above Betel. We may sketch this ladder as follows, with the angels ascending and descending on it. The problem with this picture is that the central point of the incline, marked as stretching over Yerushalayim, is rendered insignificant. Moreover, in actual fact, Yerushalayim is not halfway between Beersheva and Betel. It is closer to Bethel, and further away from Be'er Sheva. The angels ascending and descending also present a problem. In reality, such a situation would be almost impossible. Let us present a different perception of the ladder, rather like the sort of a stepladder that we use at home, with two legs. In addition to the angels, let us add Yaakov lying under the ladder, and Eretz Yisrael rolled up under him. This interpretation would seem to offer several advantages. First, The center of the ladder's incline is its uppermost point. This is what the ladder leads to. It reaches to heaven. It is the center of the incline in the sense that up to this point the slope ascends, and from the point onwards it descends. Second, the legs need not be of equal length, and there is nothing preventing the gateway to heaven, the most important part of this dream vision, from being suspended over Yerushalayim, which is the most important of the three cities that appear in the dream, according to the Midrash. Third, the angels that are ascending, which Rashi understands to be the angels of Eretz Israel who have completed their task of guarding over Yaakov, ascend a different path than the one used by the angels responsible for other countries, which now descend from the heavens to accompany Yaakov as he leaves Eretz Israel. The angels of Eretz Israel ascend from the Ersheva as soon as Yaakov leaps there, and they return to heaven above Mount Moriah, while the angels responsible for his safety outside of the Holy Land descend from there to Bethel. Which is Yaakov's final stop in Eretz Yisrael. Fourth, Rashi's statement that when Yaakov leaves Beersheba, the place loses its glory now makes sense. The heavenly angels leave the city together with Yaakov, and they ascend heavenward. Although Yitzchak remains in Beersheba, these angels were sent specifically to watch over Yaakov, and now that they have left, the city has lost its glory. Fifth, the Midrash that teaches that God folded all of Eretz Israel under Yaakov's head now assumes new significance with relation to the dream of the ladder. Yaakov's head is in Bethel, under the head of the ladder horizontally, for it is there that his mind is active. The legs of the ladder, horizontally, are in Be'er Sheva, where Yaakov's feet are also resting. The middle of the ladder's incline, which is the vertical head of the ladder, is at the gateway to heaven, above Mount Moriah. And sixth, If we assume, as certain commentators do, that the Betel that Yaakov knew was about 10 kilometers north of Betel as we know it today, a physical measurement demonstrates that the gateway to heaven suspended over Yerushalayim is over Yaakov's heart, with all the significance of God's revelation and the location of Mount Moriah and Yerushalayim over his heart. The picture that we have proposed creates an obvious parallel to the structure of the Kodesh HaKodashim, the permanent location of the revelation of the Shechina, for this purpose, we need only convert the sketch according to the following key. First, the stone under Yaakov's head corresponds to the foundation stone, upon which the Kodesh Hakodashim rests. Second, Yaakov, who is the chariot of the Shekhinah and the guardian of God's covenant to the forefathers, corresponds to the Ark of the Covenant with its tablets. Third, the angels on the ladder, above and on both sides of Yaakov, correspond to the Kruvim, who stand above and on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant. And fourth, God, who stands over Yaakov in the dream in between the angels on the two legs of the ladder, corresponds to the voice of God, which emerges from above the covering between the two kruvim. Beit El, literally the house of God, is a general name that may be given to more than one place. We know that Avraham dwelled in Beit El and Ai, and we know that this place had always been called Beit El. This site is identified as being close to the settlement of Beit El today, slightly east of it, in the Arab village of Betin. But Yaakov gave the name Beit El to a place that had formerly been called Luz, and this may be a different place. Perhaps we may locate it north of Beit El today, in the mountains overlooking the settlement of Shiloh from the south. Indeed, the name offers us the possibility of matching them. Shiloh is not a specific, defined, bounded location. As consecrated food may be eaten in any place from which Shiloh, the place of the sanctuary before the temple in Jerusalem was built, may be seen. We assume that Jacob's Bethel is related to and anchored in the sanctity of Shiloh in later generations. Support for this thesis is to be found in the verses describing the war over the concubine in Givah. B'nai Israel and all the nation went up and came to Bethel, and they wept and sat there before God, and fasted on that day until the evening and they offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And Bnei Israel asked of God, for there the Ark of God's Covenant was in those days. And Pinchas, the son of Elazar, the son of Aharon, stood before him in those days. Here all the commentaries note, correctly, that Bnei Israel gathered at Shiloh, for there the Ark of the Covenant was located, and Pinchas with it. If we accept this assumption, then the Betel of our is not left orphaned and alone, and God's revelation to Yaakov and Bethel, both in our parasha and in next week's parasha, when Yaakov returns from Padan Aram, are not left devoid of meaning for all future generations. We find an answer to our question, why did the congregation of Bnei Israel gather at Shiloh and establish God's ark there in the days of Yahshua? After all, no mention is made until then of anything special related to Shiloh. Why then was this place chosen for the sanctuary to be erected? We can also now understand Yaakov's mysterious words to Yuda in his deathbed blessing. The staff shall not depart from Yehuda, nor the scepter from his descendants, until Shiloh will come, and the people will obey him. The commentators have difficulty explaining this verse. In my view, Yaakov handed over kingship to Yuda until God would rest his Shekhinah in Shiloh, which Yaakov knew from the dream of the ladder in Bethel, which is Shiloh. From the moment that the Ark came to Shiloh, God himself would lead Israel, not any of the tribes. And the place of Shiloh was given by Yaakov to his favorite son, Yosef, the firstborn of Rachel, to whom he dedicated the priestly service. Therefore he raised him as the Nazarite of his brothers, in the same way that Hannah raised Shmuel. Of Yosef's two sons, Yaakov chose Ephraim. Yisrael put forth his right hand, and he stretched it over the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand over the head of Menasheh. He crossed his hands, for Menasheh was the firstborn. To my mind, Yaakov placed his right hand over Ephraim's head in order to hint that he would receive the southern portion of Yosef's inheritance in the land, the portion in which Shiloh is located. We may ask, why did Yaakov not also mention Yerushalayim, which is more important than Shiloh Beit El, and which was given to Yuda and Binyamin? I believe that this is the significance of Chazal's teaching that Yaakov sought to reveal the end, but it was hidden from him. Yaakov saw in his prophecy as far as Shiloh, but he did not see the future beyond that, Yerushalayim. Perhaps this was a punishment to him for his instinctive, unauthorized selection of Yosef and of Rachel, his mother. After all, God chose both Rachel and Leah, both of whom together established the house of Israel. He also went on to choose Yerushalayim, where Rachel and Leah were joined together in the persons of Yehuda and Binyamin. This is the Yerushalayim that we pray for God to give us the merit to see rebuilt in all its glory, soon and in our days. Amen.